Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. It's a special Central Valley Proud edition of Policy in a Pint as we sit down with Lenny Mendonca, the Chief Economic and Business Advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom. He's also Director of the state's Office of Business and Economic Development, better known as GOBIZ, as well as the Chair of California's High Speed Rail Commission. Mendonca is a Central Valley native, growing up on a dairy farm in Turlock and becoming the first in his family to go to college. That college turned out to be Harvard, where he became the student body president. And while Mendonca went on to achieve major success in the business world and build up a distinguished resume, he has always stayed grounded and has never forgotten his Central Valley roots. With his new government roles, Mendonca's mission is to make Inland California the most desirable place to live in the state. He wants to raise the region's stature in the eyes of the companies on the coast and solve some of its biggest problems surrounding housing, jobs, transit, and wealth inequality. Join us down in the basement of Roostaller Beer as we talk with Mendoza about his Central Valley roots and vision, how he plans to bring jobs, housing, and high-speed transit to California's flyover country, and his advice for Gavin on keeping our status as the fifth largest economy in the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of the organization. And we are holding our final event of 2019. It's a Policy in a Pint event. And this is our series in which we take a look at what's going on at the Capitol, what's coming out of it. And we aim to turn policy wonk speech into plain English so you understand how it all could impact you as a voter, a taxpayer, a consumer, and an overall resident of California. And this night's event has a specific focus because we're going to take a look at how capital politics and policy in Sacramento may affect the Inland Valley. Am I saying it right? Inland California, yes. Inland California, that's what we're going to call it, Inland California. So that person that you just heard on the other, on the other mic is someone who is in charge of a lot of the state's plans for business and economic development. And he's also leading the charge for more business and economic growth in Inland California. Lenny Mendonca is a Turlock native. He's a son of dairy farmers. He became student body president and editor of the newspaper at Turlock High. Bulldogs, is that right? Bulldogs. And he was the first in his family to go to college and graduate. Not just any college, Harvard University, where he was also student body president. His first job out of college and his, I don't know, only job, but his only employer was McKinsey the con management consulting mega firm. And he, I think the notable thing that you did there among many was you founded the US state and local public sector consulting practice. So that was a brand new thing. I will ask you about that. He also chaired the McKinsey Global Institute as well as McKinsey's communications, including the McKinsey Quarterly, which I subscribe to actually as a freelance writer. So good job. Outside of the office, Mendonca, I'm sorry, Lenny, has founded and chaired a few organizations, including California Forward and Fuse Corp. Those are two organizations that we'll ask him about specifically, too. And according to his resume on the GoBiz website, he is a board member and or an advisory member at eight different organizations. And he also co-teaches a class every semester about inequality as a lecturer at Stanford Business School. I, I, don't, I don't know where you have time for all this, but he's also runs Half Moon Bay Brewing, 
The Inn at Mavericks, also in Half Moon Bay, and is also lead investor in the group that runs the town's newspaper, Half Moon Bay Review, which I did lead, I've, I live there too. I know all these connections, but it's a very good newspaper, so good job. When he is not busy with all that, his official day job now is, according to his LinkedIn page, Chief Economic and Business Advisor to Governor, our Governor Gavin Newsom, Director of the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development, uh, which is known in colloquially as GOBIS. He's also Board Chair of California High Speed Rail Authority and a member of the new Future of Work Commission that the Governor just issued. Am I leaving anything out? That's a longer bio and intro than you needed, but thank you. <laughs> uh, so obviously uh, an impressive career, a distinguished resume. What was interesting to me and why I asked him to come and talk with us this evening is because you seem to me, just I don't know you, but you seem to still be a good guy from Turlock. Uh, you're Central Valley proud. Uh, you've never lost your love and affection for, the, for Illin, California. And he wants others in California to see that place for what it is, the backbone of the state, and an important economic contributor to the world's fifth largest economy and a place with so much potential. So in his less than a year role uh, with working for the governor in the state, he has publicly said what he would like to do uh, to get more jobs, more economic growth, more housing, and less inequality overall in Inland California. So this is a special Inland California Proud edition of Policy of Pint as we sit down with Lenny and talk with him about growing up in that area his career, his take on the state, um, the economy, will there be a recession, and if so, what are you gonna do about it? Uh, your goals for Inland California and, uh, and where that will take us all, because we are, obviously we all live here in Inland California. Before I ask him questions, a few special thanks. We are having this event at Roost Dollar Taproom in downtown Sacramento, so of course I'd like to thank the owner, J.E. Pano, uh, Taproom Manager, Sierra Kelso, and right-hand person extraordinaire, Zoe Pineda, for helping us put on this event. To our audio engineer extraordinaire, Caleb Clark from Kickstart Audio. Of course, to Lenny and his team at GoBiz for putting this event on your calendar. And last but not least, to you, the audience, for making time out of your busy schedule to attend. Because we're holding this in a tap room, I thought I would ask you, Lenny, about uh, your beer background, because I think among the many things you do, I'm not sure if you're still a home brewer, but you were. Uh, now you are a, a, a Official professional in the beer industry, so I just thought maybe this could be a shameless plug for you to uh, to plug uh, Half Moon <laughs> Bay Brewing, and also I guess if we, I don't think I've been there. I've been to Princeton Junction down the way, but I haven't been there. But if we go there, what is your favorite beer on tap at your at your tap room? Well, Vanessa, before we get started on that specific question, um, thanks for inviting me and thanks for doing what you're doing on California Ground Bakers. I think it's really important that we have really civic conversations with real conversations. I, I especially enjoy the fact that you're having it in a brewery. There's nothing like having a civic conversation to get a little lubrication. I thought of you at Brews and so, Views, and that's yes. why. So, But it really is, seriously, it's a very important thing to be doing, and I appreciate the invitation and happy to be here. And uh, your question about what's my favorite beer, uh, my favorite beer is still the one that I home brewed originally. That's the one that's still on tap from 30 years ago when I was a home brewer. It was uh, one I brewed um, for my oldest daughter, and it's called Allie's Ale on, was what it was. On tap, it's the Amber Ale, so that's our more longest standing beer. 
Your signature beer. All right, so Allie's Ale. I'll remember that next time I'm in Half Moon Bay. Also, I, I did my original personal note I wanted to ask you was about a must-visit place in Inland California that all Californians should go to if they can, if they haven't been there before. What's some place where you were growing up or some place you have visited in your time traveling around Inland California that you just think is a quintessential place that shows California at its finest in that area? You know, that's like asking who's my favorite daughter. Um, one place, just one. <laughs> so there's, um, there are, California's beautiful everywhere and it's beautiful all year round. So I love to visit all kinds of different places. The, the part that I think people appreciate less is the center of the state where I grew up and where um, it is often a place where people think about it as someplace you drive through when you're going to someplace else or something that um, you happen to eat the food that comes from there or drink the milk that comes from there, but you don't really have any appreciation for it. So just as one example, the opportunity to go visit a place like Hillmar Cheese in Hillmar where people are actually making cheese that if you've never seen it done, it's interesting. And so that's just one example, but there's all kinds of beautiful places in Central California. What was the Colin Kaepernick connection to Hillmar Cheese? We were talking about this briefly. That's someone I'm trying to get as a groundbreaker Q&A. We'll see, but what's his connection? Um, well, he just did an NFL tryout again this weekend, but he's from Turlock as well. His father is an executive at Hillmar Cheese, and uh, Colin, Colin Kaepernick was in high school at Pittman High School in Turlock the same time my nephew Tom was a, in high school at Turlock High, the two rivalries. Uh, Colin was the star athlete football baseball player at Pittman. My nephew was the star athlete at Turlock High School playing football and bat baseball as well, and so they, they were uh, kind of rivals. So that leads into my next question I had for you. For someone who grew up in, well, I'm just going to say the Central Valley, but also uh, we're going to refer to it as Inland California, which is an area that runs, I, th I think it takes up a lot, if not most of the state, from Redding to Bakersfield and Grapevine. And then there's also Riverside Inland Empire, right? So that's what we're going to, when we talk about Inland California, that's the region we're talking about. I was just curious. I did. Uh, I grew up here in Sacramento, so Central Valley proud. I also lived in Fresno for a while. I, uh, for my ex-husband's job, he also then was transferred to Bakersfield. I just couldn't. I couldn't live in Bakersfield at that point. We lived in Kernville, which is uh, up into the mountains. Um, so I still consider inland California. But I really, I learned a lot about the Central Valley, Inland California, and I really had a newfound appreciation for how important this region is and the people who live there. I wanted to ask you, as someone who grew up in this area, character traits, like if you see someone and you, you talk with someone from Inland California, if there is character traits that, you, that identify uh, that person. For example, you see a lot of articles about, you know you're talking to a Los Angelino when they're talking about the industry and they put avocado in their you know, tea or their toast or you can tell when someone's from the Silicon Valley when they wear a hoodie and flip-flops and talk about um, their VC round of funding. Um, and some of that is probably laughable, but some of it might be true. I don't see as many articles about, you know you're talking to someone from Inland California, but what are the character traits that you think identify someone who grew up there that never leave, maybe? Well, first of all, Inland California is a huge geographic part of the, the state, so it's hard to say it's there's one. So 
um, Reading is as different from Sacramento as Fresno is from Bakersfield or from Riverside. And so they are very different. But I will say there's one thing that you could say is that people are grounded. There's something about being a part of uh, the history of the land and being able to understand and appreciate the importance of uh, the volatility of weather, kind of feeling like you're, you know, it, you, you're resilient and grounded in what's going on. Now, that doesn't necessarily manifest, manifest itself as easily as you're talking about the industry or you're talking about your latest startup. But there's something it's, it's a little bit more Midwestern than anything in terms of the, the, the culture. And so... For you growing up in, in Turlock on a dairy farm, I was wondering, I guess about your childhood, what you see there is something that was very distinctive about growing up in that particular place that um, made you who you are today. Um, yeah, let's start with that question. Like, did you have to get up at 4 a.m. to milk cows? Uh, did you have a certain way of growing up because you were uh, living on a farm or in the Central Valley? What were some notable things? Sure. So um, I did grow up on a dairy farm. It was my um, grandfather started it by buying the dairy, the farm out of the out of bankruptcy during the Great Depression. And he handed it over to my father. My grandfather worked on it until his 90s. And my father worked on it until his um, 80s. And there was something about being um, the value of hard work. Um, I certainly did not get up at four in the morning, but five, and uh, had chores to do before you went to school and things to do after you came home from school. And there's something about the hard work and um, having a, an, an appreciation for um, cows don't take vacations. They, uh, they need to be milked at two or three times a day, 365 days a year. And it doesn't matter whether it's 100 degrees or whether it's stormy out. They still need to be cared to. And so there's something about um, just being prepared to wake up every day and, and put your head down and do what you have to do. Does your family still have the farm? We, we still have the farm. It's not a dairy anymore. Um, we, um, my father sold the cows in the... the uh, late 1980s and so it's been a variety of crops where now um, my brother my next younger brother runs it what are you growing right now right now a, a portion of it is sweet potatoes we're in um, something like 90 percent of the sweet potatoes in the united states are grown within about 20 miles of where we live and so it's very fertile ground for sweet potatoes um, and the other part of it are field crops but it's eventually we're going to put in uh, trees and walnuts. Great. Um, I was going to ask you about student body president at Turlock High, because it feels like there was your first intro into politics, government, and uh, what made you decide to run for student body president? And how do you think you won? What made you win? Boy, you're, I don't know where you found all this stuff because I haven't. Um, I haven't. I'm a, I'm a former journalist, yeah. so I. So know. I. The honest answer is I haven't thought about that or talked about it in a very long time. So, um, I was always interested in government from a, a very young age, and when I went to college, I assumed that I was going to be in government uh, for a career. But I ended up taking a 30-year 
journey through business before doing that. So it was something that was very interesting to me. And, and the, the reason I won is because my campaign manager, who is still my best friend and was the officiant at my daughter's wedding, um, his name's Alex Evans, and he was uh, Eric Swalwell's chief of staff until recently. Such a small, small state. Um, okay, and then Harvard, you went there and you were student body president there. I was wondering, as someone, you know, the the someone who's whose family, you're the first to, to attend college and graduate, coming from the Central Valley, going to an Ivy League, was it um, intimidating? You know, what did you, what were your thoughts about coming from the, you know, Central Valley, Inland California, going to an area that's known for prestige, or how did you uh, prepare yourself for it if you needed to? And do you think there were, again, these character traits being grounded that uh, helped you succeed and, uh, and do well at Harvard? Um, I think the hardest part about going there actually wasn't anything to do with the school or with the academics or that any of that it never really struck me as different from it's just school um, what was different was that I had been on a plane once in my life to fly to Washington DC um, October of my freshman year it snowed and I had never been in snow before other than to go skiing for a day so being snowed upon and being in a totally different part of the the country was as big a change as the academic environment uh, ended up being in a group of friends that we roomed together as freshmen all the way through senior year still still close friends so it was really um, it what it didn't feel like a big huge adjustment other than being all the way across the country and in a totally different uh, climate and seeing snowflakes for the first time fall from the sky yep all right so moving on to McKinsey your only employer I guess up until the state. Um, again, I, I researched this and what they said about you on the McKinsey website was you started the company's state and local public sector consulting practice. So that seemed to be uh, the first time where connecting public and private sector was, was something the firm did. What made you think of that? You know, how did it work? Um, and I guess some of your, that, that uh, sector's achievements that resulted out of that practice? So there were a group of us, I wasn't the only one, who had had some experience doing work in government. Either some of them had been full-time in government and come to McKinsey, and others had done advising informally in particular situations in different parts of the government. And at that time, just felt like the sets of skills that McKinsey brought to its private sector clients could be useful in a public sector, se sector setting. They weren't doing um, policy work. They certainly doing, weren't doing political work. It was much more the managerial side of government. And so the, uh, the view was that there was an opportunity to help bring some management capability and advice to the public sector. And um, when I was responsible for the state and local practice at McKinsey at the time, a lot of what they were doing was work in um, economic development, work in infrastructure, work in education, work in healthcare. And so a lot of it was trying to help state governments and uh, sometimes larger cities think about how could they improve those capabilities, whether it was um, thinking about how to um, improve the job capability, how to deliver 
healthcare more effectively and efficiently. They did a lot of work in uh, back office side of government, which doesn't get a lot of attention, but is extraordinarily important on managing your IT systems or your phone center. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff. It's not stuff that you would say, this is really um, newsworthy and sexy and interesting, but incredibly important if you want to have confidence in government is you actually have to deliver. And so a lot of what they worked on was trying to help um, government deliver better. And I know you started uh, in Washington, D.C. with McKinsey, and then you moved to San Francisco. No, I actually started in New York. New York, okay. I worked there for two years and then transferred to San Francisco, where I spent most of my career. The last five years, I was in Washington, D.C., although I never moved from California. I commuted oh. from San Fran the Bay Area to Washington, D.C. Okay. And then, uh, again, like I had mentioned, outside of the office, you you did a lot of things and two of the organizations that you either co-founded or or chaired were uh, Fuse Corps, which I wanted to ask you about. Um, if And I, I didn't write down the description of that, but it sounds like that was a kind of like a, a similar thing to what you were doing at McKinsey, bringing uh, the private sector, maybe startups, uh, connecting them with public sector agency, government agencies to make them run more efficiently. So what, yeah, tell us about Fuse Corps and what happened there. So I was the co-founder and chair until I took this role of um, Fuse Corps. What it was, it came out of when I was leading McKinsey State and local government practice, I'd go talk to a mayor or a governor or their senior team. And as I was walking out the door, they would very often say, if you know anybody who's leaving McKinsey who'd like to come work in government, can you point them my way? Because we were always looking for talent. And then I would have all of these people, partly because of the role I was playing in McKinsey, who, who were had you know, eight, 10, 15, 20 years of experience and say, I'd really like to serve, do public service, but I don't want to run for office. And I don't want to be, it's, I'm at a different point in my career. How do I do that? And so um, I said, something's not right here because there's this demand for talent. And there's this interest from people who wanted to do public service, but didn't know how to do it. So we went to the Obama White House and said, um, would you like this to be a program of the White House, similar to White House Fellows? And very shortly, we agreed that was a bad idea because it would be something that would be seen as um, too associated with one administration and would probably not survive, and that it was better to set it up as a not-for-profit. So that's what we did, and it's still, it's today, there's um, 50 or more fellows out across the country who spend a year or two in public service um, working for on important issues as as uh, asked for by uh, a, uh, most of it's with mayors, but um, in cities across the country. I believe there's a few score in in Sacramento. There, I think there is. Yeah, uh, and then the other organization I wanted to ask you about that I'm not sure if you co-founded or at least took a big part in developing was California Forward, which had its annual economic summit last week in Fresno. So again. A similar question is to what California is with Fuscore, what California Forward does. And I saw there was a summary of some big news coming out of the annual meeting last week. Uh, Gavin Newsom, our governor, was there at the uh, on the final day to give a keynote and to make some some big announcements. So, yeah, just a summary of California Forward, what its mission is, and then with the economic summits that it runs annually what uh, comes out of these particularly last week. Sure, so California Forward was established over a decade ago to try and help 
uh, work on in a bipartisan way on issues of California governance and economic performance, trying to make it work better for its citizens. A lot of the early work that California Forward did was on political reform. So they were either active, initiated, or partnering in everything from redistricting to open primaries to the change in term limits to the rainy day fund. So they're active in those sort of things. In the last several years, a large portion of the attention has been on the economic summit, which as you said, was last uh, two weeks ago in Fresno. It's a, um, an annual event that is um, rotated around the state that brings together people from different, different backgrounds, so government, private sector, civic sector, to talk about and work on issues facing the state. Um, I, it was, um, this was the eighth one in Fresno. It was the largest one by a factor of two in terms of the attendance. It had a rich history. The, the Economic Summit's original honorary co-chairs uh, and participating in every one was the governor. And so he's deeply aware of and committed to the kind of process of thinking about economic development and regional activity. And so that was what, that's what the Economic Summit is. There were a number of things that were part of that that summit, we, uh, it's run by California Forward. I'm no longer involved, but the state partnered with them in a lot of ways and helped um, participate in a lot of the sessions. Um, the governor gave the keynote address, talked um, quite um, forcefully about the importance of the economic success of the state of California, and then announced a series of things that are important priorities for the governor, including um, ensuring that we are continuing to support and invest in the high-speed rail project that's got a, an early traction in the center part of the state but will eventually connect the, to the north and to the south from the Central Valley. Um, he talked about and announced a $23 million philanthropic contribution from a number of philanthropists, both um, uh, individuals, uh, corporate foundations, and private foundation to support activity in inland California. He announced a very important higher education initiative in Fresno that is really trying to connect the across the the major systems of post-secondary education the ability for people to much more efficiently and effectively go through those systems in and graduate with degrees in in-demand occupations and then he um, announced a uh, important element around reinforcing the value of uh, regional activity to ensure that there's a focus on inland California. We'll be talking about a lot more about that as as we go forward. And so those were some of the things that he talked about. And how did you meet Gavin? And how did you get this gig as his chief economic advisor? So um, I met the governor when he was mayor of San Francisco. He was on a board that I uh, chaired at the time called the Bay Area Council Economic Institute, and so we did work together on economic issues related to the state, and then related to the city. And then when he became lieutenant governor, um, I did a lot of work with him informally. Um, I helped write his economic development plan and his higher education plan, and uh, I was not looking to come into public service. I told him that I would help what, in whatever way he wanted, and assuming I would be doing that from the outside, and then over the Christmas holidays, he uh, insisted that I come and join him on the team. It was not something I was planning to do, so it took me a month to unwind all of the other things I was doing and uh, continue to go on a long scheduled week trip to the Azores where my grandfather and grandmother were from. So I did that and started in February. 
But it seems like I think uh, we have interviewed a few other, a couple of other people uh, who work in this administration who moved here from the Bay Area to Sacramento. You did not. You're staying in Half Moon Bay or Moss Beach just north. So I was wondering if you kind of set your terms uh, with him, like, you know, I'll telecommute or I'll come to Sacramento or you come to see me. So did you have some leverage there? You know, you know someone who uh, has 30 years of business experience. Now, um, as I said a little bit earlier, I worked in Washington, D.C. and lived in the Bay Area. That's less of a commute than <laughs> Half Moon Bay to Sacramento. And so I, um, it wasn't really an issue. I grew up in a, in a professional life where you, you needed to be where you needed to be and you lived where you wanted. And so I still live in, in just north of Half Moon Bay. I'm there on the weekends. I come here two or three days a week, depending on what's here. And then I'm somewhere else in the state two or three days a week as well. And so it's, it's actually very easy to live out of a suitcase if you're used to it. So to me, it's the, really, it didn't have any impact on, on the job. Okay. So I wanted to ask a couple questions about, I guess, the, uh, the connection or maybe the disconnection between the, the coast and the inland section, uh, the blue and the red of California. There was a quote in a story in The New Yorker after Donald Trump was elected. Uh, I guess, I think it was primarily about uh, Silicon Valley's role in in the election in terms of the supporters behind Hillary Clinton and, and then Peter Thiel, I think I'm saying his name, supporting Trump. But they were talking about did they, why they didn't see this coming, you know, Donald Trump um, being elected and then the people who voted for him and how there's some of that discussion about um, that here in California, many people thought we are a blue state, why wouldn't we vote? But there's a lot of uh, the state that quote unquote is red. There was a quote here that I just thought was interesting of uh, venture capitalist from Silicon Valley who said, and I'm paraphrasing, I have more personal and professional connections in Hong Kong and Singapore on my contact list on my cell phone than I do in the Central Valley, which is just 50 miles away. And that really struck me. I mean, in terms of geographic distance, that says a lot. And I was wondering in your experience, you know, did that, does that quote, you nodded your head when I said that, does that exemplify in some ways the relationship between the two valleys, Silicon Valley and, and the Inland Valley? And if so, how can those two places connect better? In the past, what, three years or so, almost four years, are those places connecting better because of that realization? What's your take? Um, they are connecting better, but there's a lot more to be done. I think that quote was actually a reasonable representation about how a lot of Silicon Valley ventures, capitalists, and companies think. They're, they are started in one place and they go from a garage to global very quickly. Um, and that's great. It's one of the great successes of the California innovation economy is that you can start something and, and create a whole new industry or create a, a something that no one's heard of to something that's disrupting elections in a short time period. That may not be the best example, but you know what I mean in terms of companies that really make a, a big difference. One of the reasons that I was very excited about joining the Newsom team was his commitment to bridging that gap within California. Um, right now, they actually are connected. There is a close connection between the Central Valley and the and Silicon Valley, and there's a big connection between the Inland Empire and Los Angeles, San Diego, and Orange County, but it's called commuting. 
there are almost 100,000 people who commute from the Central Valley to the Bay Area every day. There are almost that same number who commute from the Inland Empire to San Diego, Los Angeles, or Orange County. Often, they're sitting in a single passenger car alone for an hour and a half or more each way because there's better economic opportunity they, in the, during that commute. And so what we really want to try and do is help make those connections visible, but do it in a way where there's more housing where the jobs are today on the coast. There are more jobs in the center part of the state from the Central Valley to the Inland Empire, and that there's transit that connects them effectively so that it's not someone sitting in a car for two hours that is bad for them, bad for the communities, bad for the environment. So the, the connection can happen both um, physically, so that's a really important part of why high-speed rail is fundamental to the future success of the state of California. When high-speed rail is done and connects the Central Valley, the Silicon Valley, for example, it will be faster to get from Fresno to San Jose on a high-speed rail train than it is to drive from San Jose to San Francisco today. That totally changes the dynamic of our connectivity. But what you don't want is a one-way train that's a, that people live in the Central Valley and their jobs are in, in the Silicon Valley. You want it to be going both ways. And so that's what we're trying to do is connect them. And Part of that is awareness and, and getting people to, to visit and be engaged. It's also completely in companies' economic self-interest to help support things in the center part of the state. When they look, it turns out that a lot of their people are commuting that distance. Why aren't they having jobs there so that the people don't have to commute that distance every time and find that they can't keep them? So there's opportunities that are in everybody's interest to make this work. So is that message getting across? I mean, when you talk to CEOs in Silicon Valley, are they responding to that? They definitely are responding to the need to have closer and more substantial transit connectivity, including rail. They are definitely connecting in. We need a different way to think about where we when you talk to Silicon Valley leaders, their biggest constraint is trying to find the talent that they need and being able to source that talent in different parts of the state. They're just not aware of the scale and quality of graduates that are coming from UC Merced, from Stanislaus State, from Fresno State. And when they start to understand that, they are very intrigued by the idea. So why, instead of your second office being in Austin or Nashville or Denver, why isn't that second office in Merced or Fresno or Riverside? And so that's kind of the, the idea. And in addition, there's an opportunity for your first office to be there. Um, there is an enormous entrepreneurial talent that is growing up in that part of the state and in the Inland Empire and in the north part of the state. 50% of the venture capital in the United States comes to California, but the vast bulk of that goes to Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, and to um, San Diego. There is not one A-stage venture fund in the entire center part of the state. So there is, that's an, to me, is a business opportunity. And so they're starting to, to do this. This isn't gonna happen overnight, but what we wanna do is bring their economic self-interest connected with the interest of the state and make that much more visible. And so that's a lot of what we're trying to encourage. All right, so there's another quote. Actually, before I go into my, before I go into my quote, I do want to say, how about we, if, if anyone has a question for Lenny, uh, the mic is over there and you can start lining up and uh, we'll take your questions. So as you, you do that, um, I do have another quote I wanted to ask you about. 
uh, from your boss, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, in June, he was at a Bay Area Council meeting, and I guess it was a breakfast, and he had a quote about states that are poaching businesses from California. Uh, I guess Texas and Tennessee are, are doing really big uh, pushes uh, to come here and, and publicly state, we're, we want to take your business. So Governor Newsom said, I see that CEO Magazine calls us, California, the worst state, the worst place in America to do business. And yet, our gross domestic product, our GDP growth outperforms every damn one of those other states they highlight. Eat your heart out, Texas and Tennessee. That's always their top one and two. But they didn't come close to that, our GDP growth. I get it. We're not going to be the cheapest place to do business. But you knew that 50 years ago. So come on, stop. So obviously, like we mentioned before, we're the fifth largest economy uh, in the world. But on the other hand, I feel like uh, I read uh, Plug, Sacramento Business Journal, San Francisco Business Times, about how a lot of companies are leaving the state. Uh, some notable ones, McKesson, which is a big health services company that had a big uh, uh, headquarters in San Francisco, they left. North Face in Oakland relocated to Denver. Charles Schwab in San Francisco, a fraction of its people left in uh, its headquarters in San Francisco. They're going to Denver, they're going to Texas. And then of course there's the first person accounts of people I know who are moving out of California as a small business employer or a worker that can't afford housing. It just seems like a, there's this general consistency of news about businesses of all size and the workforce, middle class, moving out of the state. I'm wondering if that's worse, and this quote to me seemed a little, it didn't take that on, and that's just one quote. But I'm wondering how seriously the state is taking this drain of businesses leaving, and what are the efforts to do that, to, to stop that? Sure, so um, first of all, if you wanna get the governor going on something, ask him that question. And so you saw a little bit of that response. It really annoys him when he sees the, the uh, depiction of I something happening. probably a little too low key when well, I said no, that. No, no, he, he definitely uh, gets frustrated by those news reports. So let's start with a couple of things. First of all, when the governors of Texas, Missouri, Tennessee come here, it's a little bit like Willie Sutton. They, who, why did he rob banks? It's because where the money was. Why do governors come here? It's because where all the talent, where all the innovation, and where the opportunities are. And so they come here. It's what their economic development objective is. Try and take companies or business opportunities from California. Now, which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the place where all the people that are great are coming to? Or would you rather be the one that's trying to poach someone else? So that's the first point. By the way, we like when they come because most of the time what happens is they come, they spend their money, they pay TOT, they pay sales tax, they buy a bunch of wine to take back home, and they leave empty-handed. So we're the net beneficiary of all of that. But the other part of it is we can't just dismiss this. The reality of large corporate headquarters moving gets news attention. It's extraordinarily rare, and in the aggregate amount of jobs in the state, it's a, it's a rounding error. The real issue is companies who start here and expand someplace else. And when they expand someplace else because they're getting closer to their customers, or it's a very different set of, you know, when somebody starts in Silicon Valley and decides to go to Europe or Asia to expand to find customers, that's a good thing. And when they're going to another part of the country to get closer to customers, that's a good thing. But what we don't want to do is have companies that start here feel like when they want to expand, they have to go someplace else 
Part of the reason they go someplace else is to get talent because they can't get it in the places where they're starting from. And so that's where they're going in, into different parts of the, the country and around the world. And that's part of my argument about why aren't you looking at Fresno, Merced, Riverside to find talent. But it's also partly because it, California is an expensive place to live. And so it's really an issue around trying to make it more attractive for people to live and stay here as opposed to um, not being able to afford to live. And that really in California is mostly a function of housing. And the real issue is that it, it, we are not building enough housing. And when you don't build enough housing, it's supply and demand, the price goes up. And so that's what's happening. It's mostly an issue around um, talent and the cost of talent. And that's why it's more, more people leaving than it is companies leaving. And it's companies chasing talent. Now, having said that, we, California is always going to be a high standard state. That's what the governor was talking about. We have high environmental standards, and those are the right things. Climate change is here. It's real. We're not going to ignore it. We have high labor standards. We should have high labor standards. We should treat our employees fairly, pay them well, and ensure that we have good working conditions. But that doesn't mean we need to be really expensive to do business, and we need to be help streamline some of that so people can be high standards and high quality jobs at the same time. Why don't we take our first question at the mic? Hi, thank you for uh, having this talk. I have two questions. And it, the first doves neatly into what you were just saying, and it's what can local governments in the inland area do to, one, prevent brain drain where local talent leaves and also attract these new companies that we want there? And then, two, looking at the other major actor in economics, you know, farming community, how is that going to pivot in the era of climate change? Let me ask your second one first. Um, we are always going to need to eat. Yeah. And so there's always going to be agriculture. And California is the most productive agriculture sector in the world, bar none, in, in a wide array of different parts of the farming um, industry. And so there will always be agriculture in the state of California. It is increasingly automated. And so the challenge is as much around how do you think about the transition of the next stage of agriculture into things that utilize the latest technology, whether it's um, um, data-oriented technology, drones, precision agriculture, all those sorts of things. And so I, I still think that we cannot underappreciate the importance of agriculture to the state of California. And it is going to be an ongoing important part of the state going forward. It's just going to evolve as it always has. And the next wave of it's going to be really interesting. If you haven't seen it, go online and take a look at an automatic, an automated strawberry picker. So this is a machine that goes through and can tell a strawberry is ripe, what its color is, and whether it's able to, should be picked or left on the vine. That is something that wasn't possible a few years ago, and we're only the beginning of some of those technologies. Now, is that a good thing? It makes agriculture more productive. Is it going to take some jobs from people who are picking strawberries today? Probably. If you've ever picked strawberries for a living, God bless those people. But having a way where there's more automation and they can move up the value chain is probably a good thing for everybody involved. So that's a quick answer to agriculture. And on your, your first question around what can local geographies in the inland part of the state do to avoid brain drain or attract companies, um, those are two related things. Um, what they really are um, getting incredibly great at is the center part of the state is producing uh, graduates from high schools with certificates, community college degrees, UC, CSU degrees, and some private universities that are world class. And if you look at the 
measures of schools across the country that are the most effective engines of economic mobility and at the lowest price, that list is a lot of California universities. And so we're, California is really good at that. There's more work to be done, but we're very good at it. What we need to do is make sure that those people stay locally and that there's jobs for them that can take advantage of what their skills are. And so that is part of what we're trying to do with this Regions Rise Together effort. And it's part of what many, many regions are doing, including the Sacramento region. I see Barry here, who's really focused on how do we encourage and attract the kind of businesses that want to come here? How do we encourage and attract new companies to start here and grow here? And then how do we, given the particular assets that are going to be very different depending on what part of the state you're talking about, how do they build off of what's really their historical capabilities rather than trying to say, we're just going to be another Silicon Valley? That doesn't ever work. What it really needs to be done is built off of what you're really good at. So we're here in Sacramento, which has done a fantastic job of a lot of elements of this. It's not just the connection to the state government. That's an important employer, obviously, but there's a whole set of other things that Sacramento has great rich history in that is really where the, the growth is going to come from of different kinds of industries that are connected to mobility, connected to um, the food industry, connected to um, different kinds of technology that are applied here. So I think it's, there's an important role that regions and cities and, and, and counties can play in trying to figure out and work with them at what is it that they're really distinctive, why someone would want to start a business there, why they want to grow there, and that's what a lot of the opportunity is. Can I ask a follow-up? Sure. So I, one of your earlier points was that there's very few grade-A venture capitalists in the inland area. How? My specific question is how does are these local communities attract those people? Sure. So um, a part of it is already happening, and part of it is awareness. And so what happens is if you go to most of the major um, metropolitan areas throughout the center part of the state. It's true for Sacramento, Stockton, Merced, Modesto, Fresno, Bakersfield, just going that part. There are angel investor groups in all of those cities that are doing early stage funding for a lot of companies. And then what happens too often is a founder says, I want to look for the next stage of funding. They call up a venture capitalist and they say, if they have the connections, and the venture capitalist says, that's great. I love your business. Why don't you move to Silicon Valley and we'll fund you? Right. That is not the right sustainable answer. And so what's happening now is that you have a number of venture capitalists who are actually, if you look at their portfolio, they're not doing that. They're coming here and helping companies get their next round of funding here. The largest A round funding in the Central Valley at Bitwise and Fresno happened recently. Those were Bay Area oriented venture capitalists who thought this was a great business opportunity. And the business opportunity was to stay in Fresno, expand to Bakersfield and expand to other places. So I think it's coming, but I also think this is as much about an education process to the venture capitalists, not to say do this for the good of the state or do this in your in your uh, your philanthropic pocket, although certainly would welcome that, but you're missing a big business opportunity if you're not investing in these places. So as an example, you have Steve Case, the founder of AOL, who's been all across the country together with um, his fund talking about investing across, across the United States in places that people have not been investing in. A lot of um, the center part of the country. It's the exact same thing here. We have to have more attention on the business opportunities and encourage people to invest because it's a good investment idea. Thank you. All right, next question at the mic. Yes, hello. Um, 
My name is Griffin Toffler, and I live in Citrus Heights. I have been a substitute teacher for several years, and I'm an education advocate. Um, and I just, <clears throat> you've been talking, you're interested in equality, you, you have, you teach a class in that, so I haven't heard you say much about that. That's on my list. Okay. But yeah, someone but else here, can ask here that. it is. <laughs> and also, you talk about getting talent, and I think these are, <laughs> go hand in hand. What I've seen in the school system is really a lot of painful inequality, and um, there is an organization in Sacramento, and I think there's another organization like it that serves the Latinx community, but this is um, called the Black Parallel School Board. I don't know if you're aware of it, but it would be good to look into that in terms of what they're doing to find equality, to, to advocate for equality for their the kids they represent. And they're doing a lot of good stuff. Um, but I just wanted to know like how you make the connection between business and getting talent and a good school system and what you're doing and when you will you commit to advocate for a school system that will give you more of a representation of talent so thank you for the question and thank you for being a teacher it's, there's nothing more important than educating our next generation my oldest daughter's a fourth grade teacher and it's really meaningful and serious to see. We should be um, paying more attention to how our young people are progressing than anything else. That's the future, so thank you for doing it. Um, the way we, I think about this, and it's, it's completely aligned with the governor's agenda, is we have this overall theme of California for all. That is often described, and when you see it, as a social justice and a equality mission, which it is. It is also an economic question. You can't have social justice if you don't have economic opportunity. And so we don't think of those as contrasting things. We think of them as the same thing. And so part of what our effort is in inland California and regions rise together is about trying to bridge the geographic differences in terms of opportunity. But it's also true if you go within regions, and it's particularly true if you have an honest conversation about it with demographic issues, particularly race, that you actually have to have an honest conversation about are we really creating opportunity for people? And are we really giving them the opportunity to advance? And if we're not, what are we gonna do about it? And a really important part of that is our education system, and the earlier, the better. It's so much easier to invest in people when they're young to give them the opportunity than it is to try and deal with it much later. So I think these are two sides of the same coin. And so you can't have people advancing in post-secondary opportunities if they're not had the entire opportunity before that. And so it's a really, I think they're equal parts of the same question. And that's very much what I, we didn't talk about it because you didn't ask about it, but my class at Stanford Business School is on U.S. inequality, and it's about business and public policy perspectives on what we do about inequality. And the reason I taught that class and started it was to bring to business students who are going to be future business leaders a really clear view and convince them, or it actually isn't convincing mo them, it's mostly giving them permission to say the lack of economic mobility is a business issue in addition to a moral issue. And it's really enriching to see how many business students who are like, thank goodness someone's allowing me to say what I really want to do. 
and, and getting them engaged in it. So I don't think these are contrary things. I think it's an absolutely 100% in business's interest to focus on economic mobility and opportunity as it is in uh, all of our interests as human beings. I have a follow-up question about that because I was that was on my list, and thank you for asking that. In terms of, I don't want to say it's a trend, but there is more discussion about economic inequality and and getting that, you know, lowered. And in Silicon Valley, obviously, there's a lot of soul searching in so many ways. So, with your class, I mean, are you seeing just from from teaching lecturing there uh, a, a sea change in how people are thinking? It sounds like. There are. And then in terms of it just in general outside, you know, in Stanford and then the graduates and the CEOs, they're also seeing that it is something we should focus on morally, but also an economic advantage. Is it is the tide turning in that way? Has it turned? Uh, no, I, I, um, I've taught this class for um, four years now. And even in that time frame, which, by the way, encompassed the last presidential election, the interest and attention of people who are no longer debating, do we have an issue around economic mobility and an inequality problem? It's more, what do we do about it? And that's a much more interesting conversation than to debate the facts. The reason people are more interested in it, because it's a big problem and we need to do something about it. And so a lot of the conversations that we end up having, and it's really inspiring to be around young people who are entering the first stages of their career who say, this is, my, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to get involved and do something about this issue. And they do it in very different ways. And it's, it's really um, inspiring to me, at least, to see this has gone from something that was talked about in polite liberal circles to something that is at the core of a lot of business leaders' agendas. How about next question at the mic? Yes, I want to tap back into innovation, that the first question. Um, my name is Becca Christensen, and I chair the California Innovation Playbook for Government Change Agents uh, under the Government Operations Agency. And my question of you is, there's two initiatives by the governor, and I want to know if you have a relationship to them, or if not, what your relationship is specifically. It's the Office of Digital Innovation that's coming about, and also connected to that, something that I personally in our program considers uh, inherently important, is the uh, governor's executive order for innovation sprints and bringing together government, private enterprise, um, Yes, and so what is your relationship to innovation in the government? What priority does it have, um, government as innovators, et cetera? So it's extraordinarily important, and I am connected to mm -hmm. both of those and think they're wonderful things. In fact, was one of the biggest champions before taking this job as part of what FuseCore was about, trying to encourage that kind of innovation right. in government. And the Office of Digital Innovation is in part built off of, as you know, some of the history right. in the Obama administration around trying to make that happen. And it's not about saying, let's just go outsource innovation or right. have a group of people that are not in government do innovation. It's about enabling the innovation, innovative capacity Within of government. government. Mm -hmm. And I think that's enormous potential. One of the things that's been most exciting about coming inside government for the first time in, in uh, Sacramento is how much capability and excitement and energy there is within our public officials to do great work above and beyond the call of duty and wanting to be innovative. And so part of what I, I, I'm sure you're doing oh, that we're really excited about is enabling it. Enabling it, it's extraordinary to turn on the switch inside people and allow them to innovate. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we just did a hackathon, and and I thought we'd get private enterprise, and they'd be the main hackers. No, the main hackers were government, and they they just didn't do a good job for government. They did a good job as entrepreneurs, and it was extraordinary. And they were just given the opportunity. That's all you needed to do was turn on that switch. I think that's great, and I I'm excited about what you're doing. I'd love to learn more about what you're specifically doing, but mm -hmm. it's an enormous opportunity. Uh, I, you know, I just came from an all-day hearing at the Capitol on the public safety power shutoffs. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that's, yeah. And one of the Another most interesting in anecdotes was um, that when PG&E's website went down, it was the government of the state of California that helped bring it back up. Yes. Well, and I thought it was really um, the governor's um, promotional, the, the, his PR person for Office of Emergency Response wanted a calmer position, and so he went to the CPUC right before all of this broke. And obviously, yes. No, it's really incredible. But it's really incredible what I see. I mean, for me, government, government can be innovators. They are innovators. And it's, pardon? No, I have a, I have a question about that because mm -hmm. I think I was reading a story maybe in the Sacramento Business Journal a year or two ago about how, at least in Sacramento, it's trying to position itself as uh, a, uh, a center or a capital of civic tech, civic technology, right. and how we can really do that here uh, geographically. So is that something that, it sounds like it is up and coming, it's flourishing, it's an area where we can excel regionally and as a state? Are you asking me that? Or? I, both of you, whoever wants to. <laughs> no, I, I, I hope so. I mean, part of the next wave of um, technology opportunity isn't just in, in developing a technology, it's sort of applying it to important mm -hmm. sectors. And there's no bigger or more important sector that can use technology investment and innovation than the public sector. And we are the largest state in the country, you know, very close to a lot of right. that, where that technology is invented, and and a lot of opportunity here. Those, and there are already companies here that are really successful doing that. And so I just think that's, you know, a really interesting opportunity and a logical thing for Sacramento to, to be to be part of the home of civic technology, not just creation but application. And then when it's applied in Sacramento, why can't it be applied in other states? It's a great export opportunity as well. So what our technologists are doing is the governor, uh, the government gives them, so the secretaries and directors give them uh, enterprise-wide problems, and they have to come in as trainees in this innovation playbook and resolve with exponential improvement, moonshot projects rather than incremental improvement, the enterprise-wide projects. And then the hackathons are a part of that and bring in the people that that actually prototype technology. So it's public-private partnership. That's yeah. a good Love example. It. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Next question at the mic, please. Good evening. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Eric. I work for a, uh, a business improvement district uh, locally uh, to Sacramento, and uh, I was wondering, um, in a general sense, uh, what can uh, property-based business improvement districts do to kind of spur economic development to uh, the urban core of uh, inland cities? Um, and then specifically within Sacramento, um, are there steps or opportunities with uh, our neighbors at the Capitol uh, to really work directly with GoBiz and other um, economic development agencies? So um, let me start with I am not deeply knowledgeable about Sacramento 
region and city's economic development. You should talk to the guy right behind you there who is. Um, I do think there's an, a, uh, an opportunity that is um, already happening in Sacramento, and we would be delighted to partner with Sacramento as we, as we are with any other region in the state that is interested in that kind of economic development. I mean, I do think what we're interested in is inclusive economic development that creates high-quality jobs that create opportunities for everyone in that region. And I um, think there are uh, there is a revitalization happening in many parts of the state in their downtown. It's happening in Sacramento already. Um, High-quality signature investments help with that. The enthusiasm of... Uh, a, of people to want to be in this kind of environment and have their be able to walk to different things is encouraging. Um, Jim and Deb Fallows, who wrote a book um, called Our Towns, on they are uh, he's a, a um, columnist author from the Atlantic Magazine, and she's an author as well. And they have a, a flew across the country in a small plane in a bunch of different cities, spent a week or two there and reported on what was going on in those towns. One of the towns they went to was Fresno and spent a lot of time there. And what they came away with is there's this renewal happening on the ground in very different parts of the country that no one talks about because it doesn't make national news. It's actually happening in California as well. That's why they talked about Fresno. Jim is from Redlands and he talked about what's going on in the Inland Empire as well. And um, just as an anecdote, they have these 10 indicators of where you see that renewal happening. One of them is a very close connection between often community colleges and the workforce. There's an important element of a, a civic leadership that is part of those conversations. Um, and my favorite one of one of their indicators is if there's a burgeoning craft brewing scene in the town, that's a good indicator of there's urban renewal going on. Thank you. So in terms of GoBiz, uh, I should ask, what, what does it do? And what is it, uh, for if you're a small business owner or an owner of any size, what can GoBiz do for you? And I feel like uh, this, this organization was started by Jerry Brown. It's not that, it's not that old. It's fairly new. Um, but I, I haven't heard much about it. Maybe, it isn't, maybe it's not um, publicized so much in the, in the news publications I, I read. So I don't really know that much about it. But yeah, what can you tell us about GoBiz, what it offers, especially for businesses that the state wants to keep here? So it, um, the business and economic development activity of the state has been reorganized in a bunch of different times over history. Um, the most recent incarnation is what's in the Office of Business and Economic Development. There's a lot of different things there that um, are um, part of that equation. There is a, um, among other things, a business location and support activity. So a company anywhere around the country or the world is looking to locate in California or any company in California is looking to expand. We help them for free on what are the businesses, places that they should look and help them navigate that and then point them and partner them with their local economic development activities. We have an office of the small business advocate who administers both grant programs and helps support small businesses in their, in their, their uh, journey as small business people. Um, we have a, the, um, a couple of specific programs that are functions of um, legislation or initiatives. So the the uh, effort to roll out the zero emission vehicle infrastructure in work is on our office. The office is part of the initiative that legalized cannabis. The person who is helping navigate the cannabis industry to move it 
into the legalized way is in our office. So, so working with that industry. We also have the uh, CalCompete's grant program. When companies are thinking about there's a possibility that they may want to leave the state, we work with them and help them give them incentives to stay in the state if they commit to specific job creation over time job retention and job creation over time. And then we have activity in a couple of other areas. We have the, the uh, iBank, which does uh, investment in uh, infrastructure and um, supporting activities for both small businesses and municipalities that are looking for financing. And then we have a couple of other things that are um, in our office. We have, um, we are the state agency that is connected to, and I sit on the board of the California Tourism activity visit california is a hundred million dollar activity that markets the california brand to visitors around the country around the world sorry and that's funded and supported by the people in the tourism and hospitality industry but we're connected and over help oversee that and then we also have the um uh, the work that is um, supporting the california film commission which helps provide support for entertainment industry and the, the film industry to film in California. The, one of the uh, grants that was just given by relatively recently by the California Film Commission was to Ford v. Ferrari, the new movie that's out. And the reason that was filmed in California and created $100 million of economic activity in California based on the report that they just released is in part because of a grant that we gave, the California Film Commission gave to have them film in California. So. You probably don't hear much about all those, but those are the kinds of things that, that we do. Is there anything you want to add to that? Do you want to make it more of a public-private sector thing or things you want to add or boost with GoBiz that you can say? Sure. I mean, I don't think it's about adding a bunch of activity as much as it is helping coordinate on things that we're doing across the state. So we're very actively involved in the Future of Work Commission, which is probably a whole other conversation. But we're, we're um, I'm co-leading that with... Secretary of Labor, Julie Sue, and the Governor's Senior Advisor on Higher Education, Londe Jose. We're very deeply involved in this Regions Rise Together initiative that I described to you. And we're generally connected on any issues that are related to business and the economy in the state. And a lot of that are things that are cross agency. So we're very involved in a number of industries that are thinking about or figuring out how to expand in the state. So everything from uh, as I said, zero emission vehicles uh, to automated vehicles to space and satellites to precision agriculture to the next generation of, of wood products that are can be connected to the, the wood coming out of the forests to the next generation of green logistics. So we're involved in a whole set of things that are part of the overarching role of helping ensure a vibrant and inclusive and sustainable economy in the state of California. Next question. At the mic, please. Hi. Um, I get the sense that a lot of this um, new investment in housing and jobs is really focused on some of the urban areas like Fresno and Riverside, um, where I feel like most of the inland California is really defined by very rural and unincorporated communities. Is there a plan or you have ideas about investing in those very small communities um, in a way that doesn't worsen the gap between you know access and opportunity? Sure. Um, thanks for that question. And the um, two things. Number one, the reality is that most of the people in the inland part of the state actually live in metropolitan areas. They may be um, a different 
um, part of the state than the big cities on the coast, but you know most of the people live within a, a commuting distance of a metropolitan area. Having said that, there are a lot of people that are in rural California, and that's not true. And one of the things that I forgot to mention when um, the governor announced was probably the one that was most enthusiastically received in the economic summit was a commitment that the governor made to um, rural broadband access for everyone. And so trying to ensure, among other things, that historically staying connected meant staying connected physically. Today, staying connected also means staying connected virtually. And we have to ensure that no matter where you are in the state, you have access to high-speed internet and that you have the ability to be connected to the job opportunities that are available in that. There's a lot of other things that are part of the rural um, opportunities in the state that are connected to other investments that are going on. So obviously we've had a, a two years now of substantial um, uh, forest fires and the amount of investment that's going to go in and is going in to help manage our forests and renew that is creating, an, uh, we're actually a, a huge shortage of workers who are able to do that kind of work and want to do that work in large parts of the state. And then I think there, uh, there um, is an a open question about what else can or should we be doing to help encourage rural economic development. There are, it's a, a challenge across the country, not just in the state of California, about how you do that. Part of that is ensuring, as I said, that people are connected to the economy. Part of it is also a, ensuring that they have uh, investment in education. It's also part of ensuring that they have investment in other physical connectivity. So making sure that we have um, thoughts on how you can connect into the transit systems that, that are part of how the ongoing life works. And then I, I, I would just say that um, we're open for ideas on what else we could or should be doing in that front. We don't have a silver bullet for all of these. And part of what we're trying to do in this Regions Rise Together effort is to have conversations in communities to say, you're thinking about this every day more than we're thinking about it. What do you want to do and how do we help enable your success? Thanks. I had a question about uh, transit, high-speed rail in particular. Um, living in Fresno, I took the uh, San Joaquin, the train, the San Joaquin Amtrak uh, to Martinez and then transferred or maybe to Richmond, I can't remember, but it was slow. And so when I heard high-speed rail, uh, I was very excited because after you traveling around Europe, many, probably some people who have gone to Asia and Europe have seen their high-speed rail, uh, the bullet trains. And so, uh, but it's a lot of money, a lot of work, and um, not everybody's on board, uh, pardon the pun. And now I read that there's discussion, at least among uh, people in the legislature, about Maybe that money for high-speed rail could be better used in areas where there's already transit and needs improvements uh, on the coast, LA, the Bay Area. And so I'm not sure where it stands, but it sounds like there's uh, a possibility where the high-speed rail, you know, it's a lot of issues, but there's a, this next issue where that money could be going to uh, the coast. In your role as uh, chair of the high-speed rail authority, what do you envision, what's still, what's realistic, you know, based on all this discussion, what do you envision, what, what can you tell us about the future of high-speed rail in California? So what I can tell you about the future of high-speed rail in California is what the governor said and what he reiterated again when he was in Fresno 
last week, which is we are committed to building a high-speed infrastructure in the state of California, starting with the portion of it for which we have the resources and the clearance to do, which is in the center part of the state. From, from Bakersfield from to Merced. Bakersfield to Merced. In addition, we are spending substantial dollars on helping encourage the preparation for the next stage. So high-speed rail has funded the electrification of Caltran in the Bay Area. It's put billions of dollars in supporting the infrastructure in Southern California, including Union Station, to ensure that as the in, uh, opportunities to connect there happen. In addition, we are supportive and excited about things like what's happening with private investment that's already encouraging. Just recently, Virgin Trains announced that they're gonna build a high-speed system or high-speed train that goes from Vegas to Victorville and eventually from there to downtown Los Angeles. We're also supporting the connectivity and activity that occurs so that high-speed rail on both ends is connected to other transit systems so it's easier to connect those and tell the full systems about whether that's the San Joaquin's and ACE in the northern part of the state or connecting to um, through Bakersfield right now it's going to have to be to buses until we get the rail through the Tehachapi's I mean sorry yes over the grapevine but um, high-speed rail is is being built now it is being if you want to see it go to to Fresno and around there and see that the it was one of the things that happened to economics and people had a chance to tour it it's very different if this is a theoretical conversation than you actually see what's going in on the ground and you know the opportunity to we are completely aligned with there needs to be more investment in transit all across the state that's happening Voters, when they had the opportunity in Southern California and Los Angeles, approved major funding for transit. There have been measures in the Bay Area multiple times, and there may be another one on the ballot this year to invest in transit locally. This isn't an either-or question. It's an and question. Um, High-speed rail has a specific set of requirements that are built into the combination of the ballot initiative that was passed and two federal grants that require it to be spent on particular things. And so it's, and it's a good investment. You know, as you said, you go around the rest of the world, particularly in Europe and in Asia, and people are, if you've not ridden on a high-speed rail train in some place other than else in the world, you don't know what you're talking about until you're on one. I rode it from Tokyo to Kyoto, and I rode it from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and it's just an incredible thing. And, and why can't California, which is the fifth largest economy and the home of innovation, have a high-speed rail that gets people back and forth across the state in a way that is faster, cleaner, takes, takes people off of those cars and gets them in a place where they can get there much faster. And finally, um, we are having, California is gonna grow. We're gonna, we are gonna be 50 million people and we're not gonna be able to support that and meet our climate objectives by building more freeways and putting more people on cars. We have to make sure we're fixing the existing roads that are there, but we really have to invest in the next wave of infrastructure and high-speed rail is a crucial part of that. And it's still going, though. It's 100% going, and we're building it right now. <laughs> there are 3,000 people out there right now employed building high-speed rail in the center part of the state, which is a building blocks approach of that's the place where you can get it built fast and demonstrate that it really does work. Raise your hand if you have a question at the mic. Just one and two. Okay, and three. Okay, so we'll make these our last three questions, keeping on the time. So next one up. Uh, hi, my name is Vincent. Um, this was a perfect segue because I actually did, um, you know, you mentioned rural broadband. I was going to talk about rail authority. 
um, and the things that you guys are doing. Um, what are some other initiatives that maybe we don't know that are trying to maybe, you know, holistically help out, um, whether it's, you know, initiatives, grants, laws, things that are being put in place that are either connecting and bridging, like you said, or providing 3,000 jobs, like you just said? Um, you know, is there anything else that maybe the public isn't as privy to or just doesn't, you know, like you said, sound sexy enough to get the press? In the in inland part of the state? Is that what? Yeah, ideally inland, but, you know, connecting that yeah. as well, too. So, I mean, I think that what's happening in a lot of uh, parts of inland California is this enormously interesting set of innovation and industries being built that no one knows about and that can use some support and investment to take to the next stage. So I mentioned one of them, which is precision agriculture. The amount of research and energy and interesting real business opportunities that are coming out of our investment and innovation at that industry between UC Davis, UC Merced, and a lot of uh, Cal Poly um, are really exciting and interesting, and that will generate the next stage. And so what we what can we do to help encourage that? Um, it, uh, the Inland Empire has gone from being ground zero in the real estate meltdown to having faster job growth than the rest of the state. And a large portion of that was driven by the logistics industry. 10% of all the warehouses in the United States are in the Inland Empire. So the excitement that's happened around e-commerce creates all kinds of jobs in places that you don't necessarily see unless you're there. And what we have to do, and, and the Inland Empire is excited about, is ensuring that as those jobs get automated, and as we think about ensuring that moving packages around doesn't happen in a way that puts more um, trucks that are diesel on the road that creates more climate and air pollution problems that how do we legitimately ensure that industry is successful in the next wave as it was in this first wave that's very exciting to me the opportunity for hydrogen trucks that can be deployed that have equivalent uh, zero emission opportunities that batteries have done in passenger vehicles is something that's going to transform the trucking industry in the next decade as much as the zero emission vehicles, which no one knew what zero emission vehicles were, electric cars in the US a decade ago, it's now the eighth largest export of the state of California zero emission vehicles. So just imagine that there's gonna that's gonna continue to happen in a lot of other industries and a lot of those are connected to parts of the state that aren't necessarily um, Silicon Valley. Thank you so much. Great question, thank you. Next up. It seems like we have a lot of issues related to people being required to live where they work. Um, you know, you have housing crises and long commute times, and in small towns you have uh, brain drains, and some towns are subject to a boom and bust cycle, so that deprives those towns of a tax base and school kids and patrons for local businesses. And then we also have social and political se segregation in this country and in the state. And I'm wondering if anybody is talking about at the government level about finding ways to encourage businesses to decentralize or encourage more teleworking. Um, you know, even the, even the state is not really doing that with its own employees. So I'm just sort of curious if anyone is thinking about that as a possible solution. It, it's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you raised it because um, it, it's a big part of the conversation on Regions Rise Together. It's also a fundamental part of our conversation in the future of work. With connectivity, there's no reason that someone who's doing sales calls in their office needs to commute two hours and sit in an office building. Why aren't you doing that out of your home? And so there's a lot more of that work already happening. One of the members of our Future of Work Commission is the CEO of Upwork, and he asked to join the commission for this particular reason, because his uh, head of public policy for Upwork 
nationally actually lives in Fresno and deliberately wanted to live in Fresno because that's where he's from. And he basically moved the operation there and does all of his work virtually. And his argument, which I completely agree with, is why isn't that the norm rather than the exception? You know, it makes a huge difference. My daughter works for a company that they work at home one day a week. Why is that such an unusual thing? How much time do you come into the office and sit in your office and do what you could be doing someplace else? And particularly for um, rural California, particularly for parts of the state where their opportunities are to sit in your car for two hours, to drive to Highway 101 and sit in that sales tower, why are you doing that? So I think there's an enormous opportunity there and I'm really excited about that one. Thank you. And I actually had a question, I guess, I'm trying to tie that into, in terms of the legislature and uh, you know state government. We had a, a our previous policy in a pint last week was on uh, AB5, uh, Assembly Bill 5, or the gig economy bill that's getting a lot of attention because of how it affects um, gig workers, Uber, Lyft drivers, freelance writers, a whole bunch of people. And what was interesting to me was um, the panel, there was a lot of discussion about how, at least you know, the pro-business panelists were saying, are there any business owners uh, on the state legislature? Uh, do they know when they legislate law for business, do they know anything about running a business? And so I was wondering, I don't, I, don't, I haven't uh, investigated that, but I was wondering in terms of, is there a, a business knowledge in the state legislature based on experience running a business, you know, what do you think the connection should be between uh, legislative knowledge, business knowledge, and uh, I don't know, do you, w working with the legislature, do you educate them on running a business, managing a business, does that, is that something that needs to be more um, of a connection? Does that make sense? Yeah, so uh, the at the specific level, I don't know the, the, the number of legislators who have a business background, I just, I haven't asked that question, so I don't know it off the top of my head. I will tell you the governor does, as an entrepreneur who both created businesses and still owns them, they're in a blind trust, so he's not dealing with them day to day. But you have a, a executive branch who certainly understands the importance of business and, and how that operates, and it's a voice that's really important. As part of the conversations with the legislature, we are talking about that all the time. When I was testifying today at the, Senate Energy Commission, the topic of my conversation is what impact do the public safety power shutoffs have on business and what should we be doing about that? And it's a really important part of the conversation because some of the impact of the shutoffs or a big portion of it on the economy is actually reflected in business concerns or small businesses who when their power shuts off, they don't have backup or reserves to make it through. So it is something that is an important part of the ongoing conversation. And, you know, there, there are, um, uh, important to always talk about the role that business can play as a positive agent for economics. It's also important to recognize that business can be and must be an important part of solving the economic mobility question as well. You know, we're, we're, we're not gonna have economic opportunity and mobility if people don't have jobs. And they need to be high quality jobs with career opportunities and that's what great businesses do. And so it's an important part of the conversation all the time. All right, last question at the mic. Hi there. Uh, I work for the Pacific Crest Trail. It's a national trail, runs Mexico to Canada, one of 11 national trails, 1,700 miles in California. The outdoor recreation industry is $887 billion a year nationwide. Um, it $887 is, billion? Yeah. 
gigantic, right? And and it touches the the Bay Area, the home of outdoor companies that are famous. It touches our region here where we manufacture RVs and, and the like. And it touches rural California, the small towns that PCT hikers go visit. You probably live in a, in a natural area because it's so beautiful. Um, how What role can the state of California play in supporting this surprising large driver of jobs and protection of our watersheds and, and quality of life in the state. Thank you. It's a, by the way, thanks for what you're doing. It's a fantastic it's um, really trail yeah. and a really important part of the California economy. I mean, the, um, the largest service export of the state of California is tourism. It's also an economic driver of people within the state going to do the great things that make California such a really attractive and interesting place to be. And there's large portions of the state where that is the single largest industry in the region. Where I live on the coast of California, um, it's the largest industry um, in my geography. And so trying to ensure that we are sensitive to that and it's part of the California image. When Visit California, the tourism promotion agency is talking about California, they always talk about the important gateways where people come from outside the United States, often through LAX or SFO. And But what we're encouraging people is make sure you see the whole state and understand the importance and vibrancy of the opportunities that are those rural areas. And I think it's also a really important part of what is um, going to be the economic future of parts of the state. The, the working landscapes of the state of California are a huge industry. I just saw a study, something like $800 billion in the state of California put ag mining and in, in together. And uh, ecotourism, it's a really important industry. So I, um, I've had a number of conversations with uh, members of the, that industry to talk about how do we connect that more closely to both the visitor tourism activity as well as the economic development activity of the state. And uh, it is unquestionably a very interesting and important and growing. and part of the California ethos. I mean, part of why we have such commitment and enthusiasm to our environment and to sustainability is because people, that's part of why you're in California. If we wanted to not have that, we could do a lot of different things. We need to preserve and enhance and protect it. All right, I have two quick questions for you and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, the first one is, like I said, I feel like researching you, you have more jobs and roles than any person I know of in California. How do you keep your sanity? How do you make sure you're doing the best at each job you have? Just, I guess, skill, I just look at that and think, wow, I would go crazy and tear my hair out, but you do them very well. What's your, not secret, but advice, I guess, for those of us who have to juggle all these roles since you juggle so many? So um, two things. One is, um, at a personal level, I am a mountain biker, and so the last question around the importance of the trails and ecotourism and the working landscapes it's part of what I do to unwind and relax and it's it's really great that you can do that in California all year round um, and in terms of juggling the sets of things that I do um, there's only one way to do that is have great people working with you and so I'm my managerial model is much more about setting direction and encouraging and and um, enabling people to step up you know, beyond what they thought they could do and focus on what matters. And I've always liked doing a bunch of things at the same time, and so that's what I'm doing now. It's building a good team. And the last question I have for you is, 
is a, I guess a personal one for me. Uh, the person who helps me put these events together and who California Groundbreakers probably wouldn't exist uh, is my audio person, Caleb Clark, who's doing these podcasts. He is, has been, <laughs> I don't know, threatening, but now he seems pretty serious about moving out of California. Um, many reasons. As a homeowner, um, seeing a lot of, uh, you know, homelessness, uh, crime, if he sells this house, can he afford to buy another one? Business issues, running a business, regulations. Uh, AB5, the whole gig economy bill. His partner uh, works in the gig economy and she's already seeing uh, that um, uh, affect her business. There's a lot of things happening in California that he doesn't like, but I don't want him to leave. So I'm wondering, Lenny, if you can, what would you say to Caleb in terms of, he's such a valuable person. He grew up in Ukiah. He's a Californian born and raised, but now he wants to leave. What would you tell him to keep him here to make him stay in California that he'll listen to? I, I would say keep coming to California Groundbreakers um, and get the enthusiasm that is why people are in California because this is a place where people come to dream and dream big. It's not always easy, but it's always been a place where people have figured out how to make a better lives for themselves and how to get uh, connected to an amazing group of people in a place that is as beautiful and gorgeous as any place in the world. There are challenges. It is expensive to live here, and unfortunately, that's probably not going to change. I mean, even if we did everything that we're trying to do in terms of housing production, there's still a lot of demand to want to live in California, and so that's why housing so is partly so expensive. But what I would say is, um, um, you know, there are a lot of people who think about leaving California and sometimes get frustrated and they wake up on a, in a November morning like today and look around and go, God, this is a beautiful place. There's great opportunity. There are great people. and I'm really excited to be here. And then they put that in their, in their uh, basket of things that I may think about someday. But I would just encourage you to, if there's really something that is drawing you someplace else, that's great. The worst thing to do is to flee something because you think there's something better someplace else when you actually have a great place where you are today. All right, let's see if it works. <laughs> and on, thank you. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. Uh, our last event for 2019. Thank you so much, Lenny, for joining us and, and giving us some uh, upbeat news about economic business growth in California. Uh, and thank you, audience, for coming. Uh, we'll call it a night. Thank you very much, and have a good night. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This episode of Policy in a Pint with Lenny Mendoza, California's Chief Economic and Business Advisor, was held on November 18, 2019, at Roostaller Beer in Sacramento. Many thanks to Lenny Mendoza and his team at GoBiz for participating. Also, thanks to J.E. Pano, Zoe Pineda, and Sierra Kelso at Roostaller for hosting this event, and to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.